The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Intuitive Connection, where spirituality and psychology meet to help you be your best and brightest self. I'm your host, Victoria Shaw, and in each episode, I'll help you to awaken your own inner wisdom, step into your power, and live a more divinely inspired life. You're here to let your inner light shine. Are you ready? Let's do this. All right. Oh, I'm so excited. So the party got started, friends, before you joined in. So I was just rushing to hit record so that I can get some of these nuggets that are coming through in this wonderful conversation that I have with our returning guest, Chris Niebauer. Chris is the author of one of my favorite books, No Self, No Problem, with some other stuff after that. What comes after the colon, because that's the important part, right? Oh, neuropsychology is catching up with Buddhism. Yeah, see, that's what really tells the whole story. Anyway, one of my favorite books, Blending Neuropsychology with the Spirituality, which you all know, or maybe you don't know, but you're going to know now is My Happy Place. And I'm just so excited for Chris and I to continue our conversation from the last show. And we're also have just been catching up about what's going on in our lives since the last time we recorded and you know how we're experiencing that both from our personal and our spiritual lenses. So Chris, welcome back. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. And you've had some changes in your life since the last time we talked. Are you okay sharing that? Yeah, sure. So I was in academia for about 23 years and had a pretty big shift in life where I was actually moving on from academia, but then it sort of didn't take. I actually found another teaching position very quick. I wasn't looking for it. Still, there you go. And then uh, it sort of found me. And so I'm still teaching, but more a a part-time level rather than full-time faculty. But so I I keep the door open. I'm not sure. But it's more like if my path ends up there, I would be open to it. But at this point, I'm more pursuing writing. And I've got the workbook coming out to No Self, No Problem. And it's finished. I'm just waiting for a release date and pretty excited about it. It's it, it's so exercise-based. We really wanted to get around thinking about thinking. <laughs> you can only go so far with thinking about thinking. So we yes. got really deep into exercises that shed light on the limitations of the thinking process and helped us connect with all the other different modalities of being human. Right. And there's so many things from intuition to subtleties of emotion to fringe-like conscious states. And it's just it's so vast. There's so much out there beyond just our capacity to think. But we've gone down this path for so long where, you know, again, I always say 
quote Descartes with I think, therefore I am. We equate thinking with our existence. And and so the workbook is coming out soon. And um, actually, I've even started another book about how powerful abstractions are. So it actually goes a little bit deeper into the thinking process because we get so caught up in work, but work is a great example of an abstraction. So it's interesting that the mindfulness movement is so powerful. Even if people haven't engaged in it, they've heard about it. And mindfulness is so powerful because it brings us back to reality. Right. You're doing what you're doing. But for so many of us, we get caught up in thought and we get caught up in these grand abstractions about life that uh, they pull us away from what is real. And the thing is, I mean, just to clarify what I think you're saying is we get into the abstraction. So we get into the thought and the reality that our thought is creating. And then that is what makes us miserable. Like it could have nothing to do as someone who, as I was sharing before we started recording, who went through a little bit of an emotional upheaval, right? What was really interesting about the experience for me was my outside world was just fine, (laughs) right? It was a great example of how we can experience this inner turmoil. And for me, I think I brought a lot of awareness to it. So I knew what was going on and it gave me more impetus to question the thoughts that were feeding the emotions that I was experiencing. But I think for a lot of people, they get totally lost in that abstraction and they don't even question if it's real or not. Like it becomes their reality, right? Survival becomes whether or not I can afford this designer pair of shoes, right? Which, you know, we both know has nothing to do. Not not that there's anything wrong. I like fancy shoes. But if your brain tells you that's a life or death matter, you know, you're going to believe it, Yeah. right? And you're going to feel and act accordingly. That's such a great way to put it. The difference between having some fun and you could buy a pair of shoes you could, and you could really have a lot, quite a bit of fun with it, or it could become very serious. Right. And this is actually the way I've, because I've talked about the left and right sides of the brain for so long, and I think I've actually changed my definition since we talked last. I'm not sure. But I've really come to see the left side of the brain as being the processor of seriousness. And then you say, okay, what do you mean by serious? Well, it's literal. And, and and so you say, you know, like you put it so well, again, you could have some fun with buying new shoes or you could think of it as a life or death experience. Right. Yeah. If I don't have these. I won't be happy. And that's thought masquerading itself as reality when it's just not the case. And so I actually had my students, a very powerful thing I did with them actually comes from the workbook where we actually wrote our thoughts out, uh, particularly the ones that troubled us and caused us a lot of worry and anxiety. And you would write it out, and then you'd write out how confident you were that this is going to be true. And then you would follow up on it and and see if it turned out to be true. And it was less than 50% of the time our thoughts tend to be accurate. Wow. Some of them, it was 20%. And people had worried. And, you know, you send that email at work, and then you're like, oh, no, this is dreadful. My boss, they're going to be so angry. And then they all joke and say, oh, yeah, that was pretty funny. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so we rely on the predictive power of the brain that's not even very predictable at all, or predictive is the word. Yeah. And one of the things I do in the workbook is take people through a little bit of tour of where the brain, where the thinking mind originated. And it originated uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago to help us survive in a world that looks nothing like the world we live in. I mean, look outside. Do you see glacier? You know, do you see, you know, ice ages? Do you see, you know, it, we're just, we don't live in that world. So the mind had to evolve in a very dramatic place and everything changed. The whole world around us changed, but we're st- we have the same program in our head. Right. And, right. And, and all you need to do is to wake up to it. And the, and the way you put it was so nice. You know, you become aware. 
well, these are just my thoughts. And that pulls the plug on them. But I love something else you said at the beginning too. And and we've talked about this in various episodes on this show. That is, you know, the tool that we have for understanding the world and parsing the world. And even the tools that I have when I am just receiving intuitive guidance, right, is our conceptual mind. That is how we interface with this shared consensual reality. That's how we navigate this human body suit, whatever you want to talk about. I mean, it's, it's an important tool, but it's also a highly limited tool when you're trying to use it to understand the meaning of life, right? It's not going to get you there. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit, about the problem of solving the problem of thinking with thinking, or you know, you said it better. Well, the thinking mind, you could probably get by in life very well, maybe thinking 30 minutes, maybe an hour a day. And it's very specific to certain problems. And, and it's a real blessing. You know, so we have this amazing gift as a species because like when we take our dog for a walk, he'll get his leash tied around something and he just can't figure it out. Like he can't figure out he has to back up, but we can do this. The solution just pops in our head. And so it's like, it's really there for those types of problems and those types of problems. It works wonders. And so it is an absolute blessing to have this tool. The problem is, again, you know, the person who uses a hammer for everything, it's just, it's great for a nail, but it's not right. something you want to sleep on as a pillow. And so becoming conscious of where in my life does thinking fit and learning to pull it out as a tool when it's useful, uh, because it was a fascinating experiment. I can't remember if we talked about it before, where people were left in a room alone and they had the capacity to give them, it was a mild electric shock. But of course, initially they thought, well, no one's going to, you know, shock themselves for no reason because they were just simply left alone with their own thoughts. And it turned out actually uh, a fair percentage, it was more males than females, but a fair percentage of people shocked themselves because being alone with their own thoughts was so uncomfortable. Wow. That they would rather shock themselves than simply be alone with their own thinking. And just like you said before, it creates a certain unpleasantness. It, it creates the anxiety, the worry in our lives. And so if we could just use it an hour a day, that would greatly reduce our suffering as a species. Wow. That is profound. My brain is still wrapping myself around that study. And I think that we do that to ourselves all the time, right? In order to escape the suffering of the mind, we create more suffering, it's probably behind a lot of social media. Um, a lot of anxiety is associated with, you know, picking your phone up, uh, scrolling through things, uh, any kind of distraction. Because the thinking mind, for so many of us, we've identified ourselves, we've identified with it. It becomes who we are. And if it's disturbed, then we're disturbed. And we use this phrase, all we say, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. And I think it's much more useful to say, well, look, I've got this very old module, this neural network in my left brain, and it happens to be anxious right now. Right. That's huge. It happens to be depressed. And that's a big difference because then we're not, we're not identifying with it. And it can take its course. And, and it, it really, it, it, like we were talking about before, the seriousness, because when you're identified with it, that's taking it very seriously. And then if you see it as like, well, there's just this module and it happens to be kind of cranky today. I don't know why. <laughs> and it just kind of goes off and, you know, you're not identified with it, but you let it do its thing. I love that. And everything turns out differently. It's, it's kind of fascinating. It's beautiful. And I know like solution-focused therapy 
it's an approach to therapy and it's solution focused, as you can imagine. But one of the tenets and the ways that you work is you disidentify people from the problem by referring to the problem as opposed to I'm depressed, right? Like, you know, what's your depression doing or what's your depression trying to get you to do? So you are depersonalizing that experience. And I think that is similar to what you're saying. It's a more philosophical way of saying when, when we cannot make it my depression, my anxiety, when it's not about me, there's a lightness that comes in. And there's also, I think, a different orientation that we have that helps us move towards a solution. And I don't even usually love the word solution because solution implies there's a problem. I'm not a big fan of problems. you know. I say to the writer of No Self, No Problem, but it, it moves us in the freer direction. That's what the guides say right? And moves us away from the perceived dysfunction. And it gives us a, a different perspective. And so two of the great teachers of the East, uh, Ramana Maharshi and Sagardatta, uh, they both pointed out, if you're not the mind, why do you care if it's busy? If you're not the mind, why do you care if it's disturbed? And why do you care if it's noisy? It's not you. And so it only really bothers us when we fall for this idea that it's me. And like you said, that disidentification it gives us a different perspective. And and again, so it's kind of funny, you know, maybe a little bit of wordplay, but you see that the problem is that you think there's a problem. Right. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, you know, I don't know. I love that wisdom of the I don't know perspective because the left side of the brain is always geared towards certitude. And like, I know that this is going to be a problem. I know this thing at work is going to turn out horrific and tragic. But the truth is, we rarely know. I don't even know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. I don't know. I don't know where a conversation is going to go. I mean, who knows? And, right. and that's the wonderful thing about life. And it's a surprise right? to believe that you actually know. Like, okay, I definitely know what's going to happen. And this is definitely going to turn out horribly. Uh, you know, that's what the mind does, though. And then, and it, again, the mind, it got us through so much that we can be very thankful for We wouldn't be here, likely, if it wasn't for its strategies. We're at a wonderful time in our species where we don't have to identify with it. We've we've had the cognitive revolution, this amazing thing that happened in the 60s where we finally recognized that the mind doesn't see reality as it is. The mind constructs its own version of reality. Right. And then it stores that as memory. So it's not like you remember things as they happened. You remember things as you think they happened. Right. And so... You know, we can get so caught up in these, you know, ruminations. And it's like, well, did any of that really even happen? And it didn't most of the time. And oftentimes, too, it's my understanding that when you go back and you revisit a memory and you tweak a memory energetically, when you remember something differently, you've actually changed the past. This is my understanding working from an energy level. And this is how I've seen it. So again, it's reconstructive because it's all in your mind anyway. You change your mind, you've changed the past. You change your mind, you have moved towards creating a different future. And it's interesting you bring up that phrase energy levels. And to some people, maybe they're not really sure what that means. But I would encourage people, explore what happens when you stop thinking all the time. Because at least for me, like you really feel a change in your energy levels. You feel like, again, we could use phrases like vibrations and emotions, but it does seem like if you just look at life on Earth, we were feeling millions of years before we started thinking. Millions. And so we've got so much rich emotional experiences that have been clouded by our thoughts. Right. 
And so at least this is what happened for me when I started realizing there were more modes to our human existence than just thinking. And thinking got really turned down from like, a let's say, a 12 to maybe, you know, to like a 2. And all of a sudden, I started like those emotional experiences started happening to me. And it was it was a depth to the human experience that just really was surprising. If everything you do is think, you're disconnected from yeah. that source. I remember when I was younger, I've always loved art and I've always really resonated, especially with visual art. And my best friend also really loved art, but we would have a very different way of interfacing with it that used to drive me mad with him because he was very intellectual. So see, we'd go to museums together and I just like to look at the paintings and I like to feel into the energy of the paintings. And as an empath and as an intuitive person, I can often, if I look at a painting, I can feel the energy of the painting. And I can even sometimes feel the artist making the painting, which is really, really fun. So for me, it was a total intuitive experience. And I would just sort of go in and feel into what I like, what I didn't like, what I wanted to kind of linger by, what I didn't, how it made me feel. What he wanted to do was read all of those little captions. And I know someone spent a lot of time doing them and God bless them and analyze every painting. And let's just say we were not very good museum buddies, though we went to a lot of museums together over the years and across the world, actually, but it used to drive me crazy. And I probably lived my life a lot of ways in my mind too. But man, when it came to art, it was the feeling. It was the feeling, Michael. It wasn't the thoughts. And yet he was someone that, boy, I hope he doesn't listen to the show. And I, if you do, I love you so much. Um, <laughs> but you know, there are some people I get the sense where they just live through the mind. And, you know, I read about it. So I, I know what it tastes like because I read about it. And I'm like, but you don't. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you that, you know, it's two people who can be in the same room together. They can, and they have their worlds apart because they're experiencing the different modalities. And there's such a difference between going in and, and again, using the tool. And I don't want to say the wrong way, because, you know, I'm sure you get some very interesting analytical stuff from art, but it's just part of it. Right. It's just one mode. And then, you know, the wonderful thing about art is that art can be, when you turn down a thinking mind or when you disidentify with the thinking mind or you just get a brief moment of not thinking, Everything in life becomes art. Right. Everything in life, it all becomes art. And because the wonderful thing about art is, particularly if, if you do art for no reason, and I always think like artists who end up making a living off of art, it's a strange blessing because in some ways, the wonderful thing about art is it's done for no purpose. It's right. the being, it's there for you to experience it and experience it as being. It has no external purpose. You're not doing it for money. You're not doing it to sell. And then the thinking mind comes in and everything about the thinking mind is about past and future and survivability. And that's why we connect it with profit. And that's why we connect it with making a living, which is such a strange thing. It's like we're all, anyone who's alive is making a living. Yes. You're a living being. <laughs> you are living. And so, um, you know, to have those experiences, the same thing, you know, I love playing guitar and I surround myself with guitars, but it has no purpose to it in the sense that I'm not trying to do anything with it. Uh, I love guitar because to me it's art and I would define art as any time we escape that modality of thinking. And so, again, I was just teaching a class on creativity and people get very caught up in trying to be creative. Right. You're thinking so much. And I say, the first hint about being creative is find the gaps between your thinking. Find the moments of silence between your thoughts. 
And those are wonderful places because that's where the world of creativity will speak to you. Right. And I think, you know, the way I understand the mind, and I'd love to have a conversation with you about this because, you know, we are both former academics, you less former than I am, (laughs) but we both have PhDs and we both, you know, geeked out on this stuff for a good chunk of our lives and enough to want to actually, you know, study it for, I don't know how long it took you. It took me four years. And I still am a sucker for all things cognitive psychology and neuropsychology. I still love it all, but okay. So we both got the mind, but the way that I understand the mind, the way that I understand the role of the mind now, which I didn't necessarily at the time of studying it professionally, is that it provides us this shared consensual sense of reality, right? It allows us to have the human illusion and it creates, for example, a sense of time, right? In timelessness, but the mind will give us the illusion of time, which is a helpful thing to have when you have to be, you know, on a interview at a certain point in time, it's good to have that sense up and running, right? It's how the world works. But I think what's happened is that illusion, that mind has just taken over and gone willy nilly. So we have all of these myths and stories about the computer taking over the world. It's a metaphor for what your mind has done already, right? Yeah, interesting insight that so many fears about AI may not actually be directly related to machines. They might be reflecting the machine inside our brain that has already taken over. We've already lit up Skynet. It's just, it's inside us. Right. And that would just be, if, if any of those crazy things came to be, it would simply be an extension of what's already happening internally. And, you know, the interesting thing about so much, so, you know, bringing up science fiction as maybe a projection of the thinking mind. Interesting thing about it, whether it's the Terminator, they played with it in almost every science fiction thing I've seen, uh, is that AI is such a thinking machine. And in, in other words, it lacks emotion in every case. Right. And, you know, these machines, the one thing they lack is emotion. And that, that does sort of point to it as being a projection of the thinking mind. Right. And, you know, I always ask my students, what is it about AI that wants to take us out? Why isn't AI ever friendly? And so another thing that hits us too, you know, it's that antagonism. The mind is always going to find a problem. The mind is always going to find an enemy because that's what its job was a long time ago. So that negativity bias in our brain is going back to that initial wiring where it's looking for trouble. There's a wonderful study and, you know, there's just a couple maybe I'll mention during our talk, and I may have mentioned them before because they're so important, but it was a wonderful study where people, all they had to do is hit a key every time a blue dot came on. And you think, okay, that's really simple. And then then they took the blue dots away and some of them were purple. So people redefined what a blue dot was. They, They started hitting a key when a purple dot came up. But then they did a couple other variations on it. They said, if a threatening face comes up, hit a button. And okay, super easy. But then they took the threatening faces away and people redefined it. And now something that wasn't threatening, now they were defining that as a threatening face. And I think the best part was a third study where people had to um, find a flaw in a research paper and they had to find some kind of ethical flaw. And of course, the first round had plenty of ethical flaws, but then they took all of them out. People redefined what an ethical flaw was. And, and so it shows how the mind resets. It's so geared towards finding a problem that if we totally take away the problems, it will redefine what a problem is. So we get on this quest for happiness and we think, well, if just this will happen, then I'll be happy. And that's not the game the mind is playing. The mind is playing a whole different game. It's saying, do this, get in a relationship, find your perfect job. And as soon as you 
get that, I'm going to come up with another problem for you. Right. Because that's what it thinks we want, right? In those studies, the person and the mind is thinking like, okay, this is my task. I need to do my task and making reality fit the task, right? So if your brain thinks its task is to find a problem to keep you safe, it's going to keep finding problems. What I'm curious about is if it would work the other way around. If you told people, right, find the happy face, would that shift for them? Would they start finding the benign face in all of the scary ones? Yeah, it's an interesting take on it. We got to do that study. You're closer to academia than I am to make that happen. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but it's an interesting, could we reprogram, could we hack the mind? You know, it's a really great question because we've got this old program in our skull. Could we hack it? Could we reprogram it? So instead of finding a problem, it found gratitude. Right. Can you find the gratitude? And, And you could see how this is actually happening to some degree. People are discovering like how everything shifts when you go from, let me find a problem, let me find a complaint, which is super easy because that's what the program does, to let me find what I'm grateful for. And that's where that whole vibration kind of changes. And it's a cool shift. Well, if you look at like Rick Hansen's work, um, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, that's his whole jam is how do we take this natural negativity bias that our brain has been I want to say evolutionized with, but that is not correct <laughs> correct grammar, but we're going with that, right? That we have um, developed, you know, over time. And how do we hack that and how do we shift? So I would love to see if my study works because I bet you that it would. And what we expect to see and what we choose to see can really make a big difference in how we interact with the mind. We can feed the mind junk food or we can feed the mind really nutrient dense things. It's, it's your choice what you're going to put in there and what you're going to listen to when it's talking to you. The interesting thing about your study, if it turned out to be on track is that, so again, you would say like find the happy face, but then you take away the happy faces and then previously neutral faces. I wonder if people would restart redefining them as happy. Right. And they may not because I know the brain does have a natural negativity bias and we tend to go that way, but I want to know now. I really Mm -hmm. want to know if they would, because that would be amazing. And when we think we're finding the happiness out there, you know, of course, that's all a trick because we're really finding the happiness inside. Right. I was going to say it's the demand characteristic in that study. Again, thinking like a cognitive psychologist now, because I used to do that for a really long time. Mm. You know, you could argue that they found it because that was the task. That's what they were given and they were being compliant and they were trying to find what they were being asked to find. And so if you think about that and you think about your mind is actually, you know, really just trying to accommodate you, you may or may not have some control of what you feed it, where you focus your attention, how you use it, what you understand the task to be. And if we think the task is always, and I want to get this from my intuition rather than my brain, if, you know, if we believe the task is always to find fault, it will help us with that. If we start reminding our brain suddenly the task is to find joy, let's work together to find joy. We might have a whole new paradigm of how to work with that old bugger. Just a theory. Oh, no, it's very cool that you brought up attention. And of course, I love the old saying from William James that, you know, attention creates our reality. And he was on track with so much of that because attention is just like breathing. I mean, it happens automatically, but through practice, I can start changing it through my conscious effort. And it's the same thing with attention. So we might be very whimsically, you know, social media might throw us through a whirlwind of all kinds of things in terms of attention. But then we can start focusing on what and training our attention. 
And so we would do this in class sometimes where I'd say, well, how long can you sustain attention? And so many of us, you know, maybe a few seconds and then we get distracted. And so many people who study psychology, neuroscientists, just assumed that that was the way attention worked. And again, we may have talked about this, but when the neuroscientists met up with all the Buddhist monks, the Buddhist monks were like, I can sustain attention for hours at a time. And it, wow. it just blew their minds. They were like, they couldn't believe it. And that's because we have no training in attention. Right. We don't train it. We don't practice attentional tasks. And of course, that's through the whole practice of meditation. That's what meditation is doing. It's it's taking a very untrained ability like attention. And again, this is why when meditators start off, it's so difficult because okay, all I have to do is focus on my breath. And you do it for maybe 10 seconds. And all of a sudden you're thinking, well, what's on my phone? What's doing? And a million things go through your mind. And in the same way that you just can't go out and run a marathon, you know, you first go around the block and then you run a mile. And we don't want to miss out on that. So when you're training your attention, recognize it may take you a while. Let it happen slowly. So, so maybe you can focus your attention for 10 seconds and that's it. But then it might be 20 seconds and then it could be a minute. Remember those Buddhist monks, they've been training for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of hours of meditation a day. That's why they're so skilled with their attention. Right. I think that's huge. And I think it is too, because your mind's going to want to measure, your mind's going to want to quantify, and your mind's going to want to win, knowing the successes, because these are all things that minds have been programmed to do, I believe in our world right now. And so be aware too, it's the process, right? It's the moment. It's each moment you have that opportunity to reconnect, to choose where you want to focus your attention, to choose how you want to retrain your brain, to choose, you know, how you want to feel in each moment you have a new moment. So focus on that. And, you know, if you think about going into this as a particular outcome and a goal-driven activity, my guess is Chris would agree with me in saying you're back in your mind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The whole point of meditation, and then again, I spent so much time trying to meditate, trying to figure out like, what's the trick of meditation? Always thinking the purpose was some future goal. And then it hit me very clearly that meditation is absolutely being in the moment. And maybe one of the gifts of that is better attentional control. But if you go into it thinking, okay, I'm going to train my attention. Right. (laughs) And then, you you know, the whole point of meditation is being in the now, which is so powerful. And, and, but the mind can't exist in the now. And so that's the interesting thing about the thinking mind. Its whole purpose was survival. So it completely exists on this past and future Time, like you were saying before, like time just doesn't exist unless we're thinking. And as soon as we start thinking, then all of a sudden we bring in, and it's fascinating from the physicist perspective, physicists can't find time. They And there's a major theory of everything. It doesn't even have time as part of the equation. It's because time may literally be nothing more than a product of the thinking mind. Yeah. It's always been my understanding that that's what the mind does. It creates time by giving us a future, giving us a past by processing information and sort of trying to, this is how I understand it. And this is intuitively guys, not intellectually. It's a pattern matcher that is trying to create a sense of a stable reality over time by sort of generalizing based on, how do I explain it? I want to get this from the guides and then they say, go ahead. So that's so unhelpful when they do that. So it gives us this false sense of reality by generalizing over quote unquote time and creating that past and future and telling us based on the past, 
based on our perceived past, right? This is how you interpret the past. This tells you what's happening now. And this tells you what will happen in the future. And it's all a scam. It's all a scam. It's a scam that's a very helpful scam for having this human experience, but it it is not the thing that's going to take us out of the human experience or the place where the wisdom happens or the place where the growth and development happens. It's sort of like the interface and we need it, but so much of humanity has gotten lost in it. But there's one more thing that's coming through that I have never seen or said before. So I'm I'm getting it off of you, but it's so fascinating. What the guides are saying to me that I'm getting from this conversation is that we have to be aware too, not just of the evolutionary history of the brain and the mind, but also how it's evolved and developed over time and what we've been feeding it over time because it has a life of its own. Um, And then that's socially transmitted and it's socially transmitted into our brains. And as we learn and as we grow, because right, we know through cognitive development, something else I studied and have postdoctoral training in, right? It's basically like how we get indoctrinated into consensual reality, right? Is what we learn through our experiences. And the brain, we're not born with that sense of reality, it develops. Usually it's a good onset by the time you're about seven years old, but it's something that absolutely has been studied and absolutely develops. And so what the guides are saying with respect to this, Chris, and I want to know what you think about it, um, but what they're saying is a lot of the ways in which we have used and co-created this tool, there's been a lot of development since that early evolution. And so they're saying... I want to get this from them because it's so cool. What they're saying is we have come to a time where we can start to use that tool differently and feed it better stuff. Like we don't have to feed it on fear anymore. Like we have a choice. And again, your experiment was so powerful because here was this demand characteristic of like, look for the danger. But what if we told the brain a different story? Or what if we allowed, okay, I have trained this thing. And over time, this thing has been trained by you know years and years and years of culture and wiring and all of this good stuff to interface a particular way. But now I can start to feed it a different idea. I can start to retrain it. I can start to say, hey, I get that you want to show me the trouble. You know, Why don't you show me the light? What would life look like if we started to use our brains that way? Anyway, that's what came through. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And, you know, we are in many ways stuck with this program. And it is such a part of our collective culture. And it's how we're talking right now. So everything right. that we're doing, like, you know, on a surface level, language and the meaning of the words that I'm saying, and um, the symbols that we use, that we write and, and, and communicate with, I mean, all this stuff is, is all culture-based and it's all mind-based. So I really think you know, it's a wonderful suggestion because we we don't want to become anti-mind. We don't want to, you know, look at the mind and like it's some kind of evil presence. Like it may be causing a lot of our problems, but it's exactly like you put it. You know, if we're feeding it really negative stuff, if, if we've never trained it, you know, you wouldn't be mad at your dog if you never, you know, trained it to go outside. And, you know, and, and if it was having accidents indoors, you, you know, it'd be really weird if you were mad. Right. Well, we often are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be upset. You might be disappointed, but you wouldn't be mad right. at the dog. You know, how could you possibly expect it to do anything else? Exactly. And in that same way, like, how do you expect the mind to do anything else? And, and so, like, you know, if you get up in the morning and you're watching news, and if you get up in the morning, and again, we have so many attention-grabbing things that are geared towards feeding the mind its primitive food that it's been fed for so long. Right. And so, you know, you get, a, it's like, look, a whole, everything's falling apart. You know, it's a dangerous place. And you get fed that, and, and the mind loves it. And the mind just sucks it up because that's sort of what it's been fed. 
And it's such a wonderful question. And doing the human experiment right now, it literally would be so fascinating to see. And we are doing this. You know, right. there are people who get up and they say, you know, I'm not watching the news. I'm going to get up and I'm going to focus on gratitude. And right. so, you know, the very first thing they do when they get up in the morning is just thank you for this. I have another day of human experience. And and that is reprogramming. And I think we yeah. have seen the experiment turn out where some people have reprogrammed the mind and they still use it. Right. And, and they're just using it in a much more positive way. And just the repetition, the change in programming. Again, so many stories, because there are two different takes on this. Because again, if you look at some of the, like Advaita Vedanta, again, like the people I mentioned earlier, they might just say, look, you know, just dissociate from the mind. But your take here, and I think it's a really interesting suggestion. In fact, I think it's a much better suggestion for so many of us in the West, particularly, where we may have become maybe attached to the mind where we don't want to really leave it and maybe reprogramming, refeeding it some new data. Uh, right. That might actually be a much better path. I mean, I think it's a blend because I think identifying with the mind, whether you're feeding it happy thoughts or sad thoughts is misidentifying because you're not your mind, right? You're that which is aware of the thoughts. And I think when we have that and I won't say understanding because, well, understanding is the first step, I believe, but it's when you have that deep knowing, that deep full body understanding, not the mind understanding, I think things change for you in a very profound way. And I think people sometimes find that through meditation or other kind of spiritual experiences where they recognize, oh, that constant chatter is not who I am. And I think that's where we create that space to be the observer, the you know awareness. And I think that is freeing. But if you then say the voice in my head is the enemy, right? Then you've kind of identified again. You've kind of gone back there. You've kind of gone into a different story. When you understand that the mind is here to serve us, I've always believed it is a tool. It is one that I need and welcome to be in this human experience, which I have freely chosen to be. I believe that too. Um, Then we can start to understand that we're co-creating a new way of working with the tools in the toolbox and a new way of creating this earth and this consensual reality and all of that good stuff. And, you know, there might've been a time when that involves sitting on a mountain meditating, but I think for many of us and many people that listen to the podcast, we understand that the growth and change that we're here to experience and to share is going to happen by interfacing with the world and being part of it. Yeah, there's no, you know, the only Zen on the mountain is the Zen you bring up there. Yeah. That same way, the peace that you bring to the world, it's all an inner process that you're bringing. And so there's no reason why you can't go to work. You could be, you know, sell insurance. I mean, there's no limit. There's no rules. It says, like, look, here's what you have to do to be spiritual. I think making the ordinary life spiritual, I think, is the new goal. Agree a thousand percent. We're not going off on, you know, Although I think maybe hanging out at a commune might be kind of fun. I wouldn't mind doing it for a little bit, but I mean, there's no need for it, you know, because we're we're working on an internal basis. We're not worried about shifting. So if you have a long commute, that could be your meditation. And if it isn't, even if it isn't, and, and you get frustrated because, you know, you find yourself being upset that you're in a traffic and that's fine too, because you realize like, okay, there's the mind it's doing its thing. And I'm not going to work against it. And the power of these small steps is just so remarkable because it's the same thing when we change what we feed our bodies. And so you go from fast food to you start really picking high quality foods and you start becoming in tune with what your body's actually asking for, not what it thinks it needs. And all of a sudden, physically, you feel so much better. And so that's so analogous to the mind. 
And you start to crave different foods too, right? When you're used to eating fast food, you crave fast food because that's what your body and your mind recognizes fuel. When you start to add some more, you know, fresh vegetables and whole foods, suddenly without even realizing it, you're craving that, right? It's a fantastic experience when you, so if you feed like the whole Pepsi Coke thing, and like if you're into that, and I know plenty of people who they live off that stuff. And no judgment, no judgment. Whatever you're eating right now is just (laughs) fine. Anyway, go ahead. It is, but when you move away from that and really get in touch intuitively with what your body really wants, not what you think it wants, because those things are really great, pleasurable experiences, but they kind of override, they, they kind of tap into the pleasure areas of the brain. It's it's almost like, you know, certain drugs, because again, you, right. you put certain sugar content and stuff. And, you know, again, it's that evolutionary mind that says, oh, this is fantastic. We absolutely need as much of this as we could. And in the past, you know, we, we might indulge, but then we wouldn't indulge again for months. And so, you know, now we totally overdo it. But it is a fascinating thing when you really break from that and get in, in touch intuitively, intuitive eating, and all of a sudden, then you go back and I'm like, you know, it's a very interesting experience. You know, the date is the same. It's the same beverage, but it really tastes totally different. Yeah. I'm not one who grew up with soda, so I can't speak to that. But I know for other things as well, as someone who doesn't eat a lot of sugar, having sugar now for me, except for every once in a while, it can taste, it doesn't, it almost tastes artificial. <laughs> you know, like even cane sugar has an aftertaste when you're not used to that much sweet. But anyway, this has been so much fun. And as you know, I could talk to you forever and I'm rapidly brainstorming ways to make this happen more often. But in the meantime, for the sake of the podcast, we got to start to wind down. So tell us what we can expect from you next and we'll we'll leave it at that. So this trip that I've been on, one of the central themes that keeps coming up is using the mind instead of having it use you. And I, and I like that short phrase because... The mind is a tool. And when you learn to use it, you you feel so blessed with it because you're like, this is the coolest tool and it helps me. And it really is not some kind of evil that was sent there to make me suffer. I was using it wrong and simply tweaking a couple things. And like you said, you know, feeding it better information, everything can change in your life in absolutely huge, significant ways just by learning to use it. And so the workbook is all geared around exercises to just, you know, what it does is it takes the whole field of cognitive science. And that's what cognitive science studied. So the cool thing about cognitive, we don't, we know so much about the mind. We are not starting from the beginning with the mind. I mean, psychology and cognitive science, that's what they've done. Right. The only mistake I would say that cognitive science and psychology has made is that they've thought that's all we were. Yes, sir. That's why I left the field. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they, they think mind is the beginning and end of our existence. And so where I come in is I pick up where they left off. And I said, well, here's the mind here. So you can learn all about it. And by the way, it's not who you really are. It's just a small little component to who you are is so much more vast and so much more unthinkable. And so who you are, the totality is beyond anything that you can think about. And some people say that's a limitation. And I'm like, no, it's wonderful because what it shows is that limitations of thinking. It's like you, it's a mystery. It's beyond thought. And that's super cool when you really get into it. And so, and so I even went a little further and I'm just starting to work on this new book on abstractions, like we were talking about before, where so many of us, we get caught up in abstractions and we're living in these abstract worlds. And again, there's nothing wrong with abstractions. Everything I say right now is an abstraction. 
So if I say the word water, it's not really water. Right. And of course, the Zen masters had to keep telling this to us over. They're like, the word, you can't drink the word water. And the reason they would tell us that over and over again is because it's such a basic confusion for so many of right. us. And we confuse paper money with wealth. Right. So many of us will take pictures at an event and, and we confuse that with the actual event. And so social media plays into that so much and confusing the symbol with the actual thing. And so uh, corporations, it's fascinating that human beings have come up with this. Like corporations are just ghosts, right? Companies don't exist. I mean, and, and yet we get pulled into this. So again, in the same way that we want to learn to use our mind, we want to learn to use abstractions and learn to use them so they accomplish the goals that they were meant to accomplish. So, you know, it's wonderful that we can communicate with them, but it's like going on vacation. Like some vacations are really cool, but you wouldn't want to necessarily live there permanently. Right. That's a beautiful analogy. And I think the abstract world is a wonderful place to visit. I just think our human experiment is going to shift when we realize that these are not actual reality. It's something that we've mistaken for reality. The actual reality beyond abstraction is so much more infinitely rich and peaceful and loving. It has a whole different vibe to it. And what it is, it just gets clouded with the thinking. The thinking mind has clouded everything. And the abstract world is a bunch of clouds in between us and the sun. And when you clear those clouds, then you feel all the warmth of human existence. That is a beautiful statement and a beautiful place to stop. Chris, this was amazing. I love chatting with you. This was so much fun. If people want to know more about you and, and follow you more, I know you have a great YouTube channel. You have the books. Can you just share all that really, really, really quick where people can find you sure. and connect with you? And then we'll also have all of that in the show notes as well, as always. Yeah, thanks. And I, I do have a, a webpage, just Chris Nebauer, PhD. And um and that's where I put updates and, uh, and books and anything else coming out and some, uh, but I do spend quite a bit of time on my YouTube channel, which also is just Chris Nebar PhD, I think, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and uh, that's where I have a lot of my, I just have a lot of fun. I, I, I really do the YouTube channel. Every morning I get up, I go for a jog or a walk and whatever it is, it speaks to me. I, and I get some kind of, and I'll, I'll do a t- video on this. And then I just come home and I do a video on it. So I don't know, you know, it's, it's connecting with that bigger world. I I can't explain it. I don't know where these things come from. They're really fun to watch. You should totally tune in. You should totally follow Chris. You should totally read the book, No Self, No Problem. And if you haven't caught uh, Chris's first interview on this podcast, you should go back and check that one out as well because he is the bomb. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Thanks everybody for tuning in and namaste. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you found joy, strength, inspiration, and clarity from today's episode. If you'd like to learn more and connect with an amazing group of like-minded souls, please join us over on Facebook in the Intuitive Connection Community Facebook group, where we explore these topics in deeper detail, have additional live teachings, and host Facebook Lives with our amazing guests. I hope to see you there. And of course, if you want to learn more about me or the work that I do, please check out my webpage, victoriashawintuitive.com. Thank you so much again and namaste.
Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.